Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center. Today we've got me, Sean Murray, Nikki Richardson, Craig London, and Russell Tregonis. This week's installment brought to you by Special K. When feeding kids some breakfast, call for Captain Crunch. When fixing his forearm, call for Special K. Ketamine. 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 Woo! All right, now let's get on with the show. This week we're talking about procedural sedation and also the agents that we can use when we do it. Procedural sedation is a bread and butter component of emergency medicine, but it's also a scenario where there's a lot of potential for harm for our patients, so we really need to be knowledgeable and facile with all facets of what we're doing. That's right, but there's a lot to know and a lot to get ready before you can get started. As with most things we do in the department, preparation is key here. Depending on what level of sedation we're pursuing, we need to be ready for certain complications that might arise. Wait, hang on here. There are different levels of sedation? I thought you were either, like, awake or asleep. Come on, Craig. I can't tell if you're awake or asleep right now. All right. Let's go over this again and kind of define each level. This part's not too tough. There are three levels of sedation. We're talking light, moderate, and deep. As you might expect, the deeper the sedation, the less responsive your patient will get. Let's get deep. Minimal sedation is characterized by anxiolysis, but with normal, although sometimes slowed, response to verbal stimuli. The person will be awake, but a lot more relaxed. We typically use minimal sedation for procedures that require patient cooperation and those in which pain is controlled by local or regional anesthetics. So this might be useful for something small and quick, like an abscess IND, a lumbar puncture, or a small pediatric lac repair. Yeah, you nailed it. And the next step would be moderate sedation, and this is characterized by a depressed level of consciousness and a slower but purposeful motor response to simple verbal or tactile stimuli. This is about where Craig normally spends most of his time. Now, this is what most people are talking about when they use the term conscious sedation. Patients at this level usually have their eyes closed and respond slowly to verbal commands. Moderate sedation can be used for procedures in which patient cooperation is not necessary, but muscular relaxation and diminished pain reaction is desired. During moderate sedation, the patient is usually able to maintain a patent airway with adequate respirations. Now, what we're going for here is kind of dissociative sedation. This is often what we're saying when we use moderate sedation. Oh, we do that all the time in the PZD. So this might be the level of sedation we want when something is going on. It's going to be a little bit more painful, and we need the patient to be really relaxed, like a dislocation reduction, maybe a chest tube insertion, or a cardioversion. Am I right? Yeah, it seems like you got the hang of it. All right, now let me try. So then deep sedation would be characterized by a profoundly depressed level of consciousness with a purposeful motor response elicited only after repeated or painful stimuli. So we might use it for procedures that are painful and require muscular relaxation with minimal patient reaction, like burn wound care or open fraction reductions. Nikki, you sound like you might have read that right out of Tintin Alley's. You know it, my daily nighttime reading. Well, I'm glad we've all got a better grip on this because it's important to know that as your sedation gets deeper, your risk of running into complications like hypotension and respiratory arrest goes significantly up at each level. That's right, which brings us to an important point. If you're going to do a procedural sedation in the department, you need to be ready to manage any of the complications that can come up. What kind of equipment do you want to have ready in the room for a moderate or deep sedation? I really want to make sure I have all my airway stuff ready, such as a bag valve mask hooked up to oxygen, suction on, nasal airways out where I know where they are, ET tube, blade. And don't forget about your end tidal CO2. 
It might also be a good idea to have a defibrillator nearby and probably some fluids in case you run into hypotension. You guys are on the money. So now we've got our room set up, but we also need to prepare in terms of the specific patient in front of us. Every place is gonna do this a little bit different, so make sure to follow your own institution's protocols. Here we make sure that we gather a more focused HMP, assess the patient's ASA classification, and determine their malampati score. Yeah, I always wanna know about prior experience with anesthesia, any current medications or allergies that the patient has. Fasting state is really important too. In terms of an exam, I always want to check out the patient's airway to determine if any potential emergencies happen, we'll be able to manage this airway. I look for things like a short neck, a small mouth, or any anatomical abnormalities. Also, if there's any evidence of acute cardiac or pulmonary process, such as COPD, that increases the risk of complications as well. Next, I determine the patient's ASA classification. The reason this is important is that ASA classes 3 through 5 confer significantly higher risk of hypotension, apnea, and any other complications. If the patient has an ASA of three to five, I think it's really important to decide if that procedure is appropriate to do in the ED. Now, we're really good at airways, we're really good at emergent stuff, but if this procedure is truly emergent and we think that they're gonna require more sedation, it can always be done in the OR or in PACU with the anesthesia team. You guys make me so proud. All right, now we've prepared our room, we've assessed our patient. All that's left to do prior to the procedural sedation is choose what medication we wanna to use to sedate. Ketamine. All right, all right, all right. I agree. Ketamine is by far the most common drug we use here for procedural sedation, but it's not always the right choice. Let's talk through some of the other choices we have. We'll start with some of our minimal sedative agents. The first agent I want to talk about is the one that I feel like we don't use enough, nitrous oxide. This is a gas that we can pipe through our O2 delivery system at a 50-50 ratio that provides a minimal amount of sedation. There are other nitrous delivery modalities that allow you to up-titrate to levels with a higher nitrous ratio. It starts working in one to two minutes and also resolves quickly in three to five minutes, making it ideal for quick procedures like abscess IND or small lac repairs. It has relatively few side effects, such as folate metabolism inhibition, so not ideal in our pregnant ladies. It also causes expansion of gas-filled structures, so it shouldn't be used in situations where there could be a pneumothorax or something like a small bowel obstruction. It provides minimal sedation, good analgesia, and also retrograde amnesia. The downside is that it can be technically challenging to set up the machine, and of course that we're just less familiar with it. Well, if that's all we need to get over, then it seems like a pretty good medicine that we should be using more frequently. What other short-acting agents do we have for minimal sedation? We can talk about midazolam next, which of course is a benzodiazepine. The IV dose is 0.05 to 0.1 mg per kg every two minutes as needed. You can also give it intranasally at 0.2 to 0.3 mg per kg, which is really nice for our pediatric procedures to save yourself an IV stick. Its onset is really quick in 2 to 3 minutes when given IV, and then comes off fairly quickly as well in about 30 minutes. This makes it ideal for really quick procedures such as pediatric lac repairs or maybe a histrionic adult who needs to chill out a little more before their abscess IND. As with any benzo, watch out for respiratory depression and hypotension when giving midazolam. Just a reminder, midazolam has no analgesic properties, so you need to provide pain relief through other means like another medication or local anesthesia. Fentanyl is another medication that's a great choice for minimal sedation. The IV dose is 1 to 3 mics per kg, which should be pushed pretty slowly here. It provides both pain control and sedation, which is nice. It's also fast onset in about 1 to 5 minutes and then comes off in about 30 minutes, so very similar to Versed in that respect. It's pretty easily titratable as well because of this quick onset. It provides both mild sedation and adequate pain relief, which is nice compared to midazolam. Of course, that comes with the price of an increased risk of hypotension, just like any other opioid. Those both seem like nice agents that can be used for quick procedures, but what about if we need to sedate the patient a little bit more? If we're pursuing moderate or deep sedation, what agent should we reach for then? 
You can actually combine midazolam and fentanyl together to get a little bit of a deeper effect. By combining 1 to 2 mics per kg of fentanyl with 0.1 mg per kg of midazolam, you can achieve both moderate sedation and adequate pain relief. Peak effects will be seen in about 3 minutes and will last for about an hour, which is longer than you get with some of the other agents. A downside to using these agents together is that they both can cause hypotension and apnea. So you'll need to really watch closely for cardiorespiratory complications and be prepared with your airway equipment at bedside. Another agent that I want to talk about that's available at some institutes for moderate sedation is methohexadol. Now this is an ultra short acting barbiturate given in a dose of one mg per kg. It comes on really quick in about a minute and then wears off honestly three to five minutes after that. Now Titinelli recommends this as a good agent before a simple or an easy joint reduction. Some of our attendings also use it for cardioversions as well. The cardiologists in our shop use it as their primary agent. Now remember, it doesn't provide any analgesia, so you have to achieve that another way. Methohexadol also carries a significant risk of respiratory depression, just like any barbiturate, and has a greater complication rate than some of our other sedatives. The nice thing is, though, is that if you do give it and it causes apnea, it comes off just as quick, so you can just bag the patient through it. Yikes. Do we have any moderate sedation agents that don't cause hypotension or apnea? Ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. What's Anyone up, Craig? Woo! I get to talk about ketamine. Ketamine is a disassociative sedative when given at the proper dose of 1 mg per kg IV. Its peak effect is 1 to 3 minutes and comes off fairly quickly in 15 to 30 minutes. Unlike most of the other agents, it won't cause apnea or hypotension, but rather can cause hypertension and tachycardia. It can also rarely cause laryngospasm, which would make any emergency airway scenario more difficult. Many patients will experience nausea, vomiting, or agitation as they come out of their K-hole as well. Although it really is a safe medication, we really should think twice about using it in patients with severe coronary artery disease or cardiomyopathy. That's right. I know it's our favorite drug for just about everything we do, but like any other medication, it has side effects and relative contraindications, which is why it's important to know about all of our other choices. What else can we use? Atominate is another medication we can use if we're worried about hemodynamic effects. At an IV dose of 0.15 mg per kg, followed by aliquots of 0.1 mg per kg every two minutes as needed, we can achieve pretty quick sedation in about 15 to 30 seconds that lasts about three to eight minutes, all with minimal cardiovascular effects. It still can cause some respiratory depression, as we all know, so watch out for that. The other unattractive thing about Atomidate is that approximately 20 to 30 of all patients treated with Atomidate may develop myoclonic jerking which makes it less than ideal for procedures that require precision. For me, the patient's myoclonus cancels out my own myoclonus, so it works pretty well. Just sync up. Other than for Dr. Tregonis here, I can see how that would get in the way of performing a procedure for most of the rest of us. Do we have any agents that won't cause that? Now, propofol is another medication we use commonly here for moderate or deep sedation. Now, this can be given at an IV dose of 0.5 to 1 mg per kg, followed by aliquots of 0.5 mg per kg every three minutes as needed. Because of its quick onset, 30 to 60 seconds, and its short duration of only 5 to 6 minutes, once again, it's easily titratable. The trade-off, of course, is that it can cause both respiratory depression as well as hypotension, especially in patients that are already prone to that, like those who are intravascularly depleted. So make sure your patients are tanked up and properly resuscitated before using propofol. Well, it's great to know that we have so many choices available to us, but I can't help but wonder if there's any other way that we could use ketamine. Actually, we can't. Ketamine and propofol can be combined together to achieve moderate or deep sedation. Ketofol. The nice thing here is that you can use smaller doses of each medicine. The use of ketamine also provides analgesia that propofol lacks. Theoretically, the side effect profiles should cancel each other out, with ketamine promoting hemodynamic stability to combat the hypertension of propofol, and propofol serving as an antiemetic to limit the vomiting associated with ketamine. 
Unfortunately, the literature hasn't really supported that notion, but it also hasn't shown any increased rates of complications either. You can give 0.125 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine with a 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of propofol. Peak effect is achieved in 15 to 30 seconds, and it lasts for about 15 to 30 minutes. I see ketofol being a useful choice in a patient in whom you would like to use either ketamine or propofol, but for whatever reason, are hesitant to use full doses. Great job, guys. That was a whole lot of knowledge you just dropped. I know we talked about a lot of numbers, so anybody listening, please check out the show notes to see some of the slides with all this information on it. Now that we've sedated the patient and performed our procedure, is there anything else that we need to watch out for? Now, something we talked about early on as a part of a checklist is that there should always be another qualified professional in the room, whether that's another physician or maybe even a nurse. And this person's job is to monitor the vital signs throughout the entire procedure to make sure that any possible complication gets recognized early. Following the procedure, the patient should be monitored until they are back to their baseline, are able to ambulate without issue, and can urinate without any difficulties. We also need to make sure that they aren't having severe nausea or vomiting. That's right. You guys are so great. We know. Thank you. We talked about a lot today. Let's review our main points. Procedural sedation, core concepts. Preparation is key. Make sure to choose your level of sedation carefully for the patient in front of you and the procedure you need to complete. Prepare for everything. Have your room set up for the worst case scenario to manage an emergent airway or a cardiovascular collapse. Choose your agent carefully. At least think about if ketamine is the right choice for your patient. It is. It always is. Find a friend, either another doc or a nurse, to help you monitor and document vitals. Also, watch the patient until they return to their baseline before they're allowed to go home. And most importantly, look cool while doing it. All right, folks, that's it for today. On behalf of the residents and faculty of the CMC Guidewire team, thanks for listening. Until next time, toodaloo. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. CMC out. first agent I want to talk about is one that I feel like we don't use enough. Nitric oxide. Nitrous. Too fast, too furious. Until next time, toodaloo. Toodaloo. <laughs> that was creepy. <laughs> <laughs>